What do you do? It's often one of the first things people want to know about you, isn't it? What do you do? First is, what's your name? Maybe where are you from? And then, what do you do? At least in the top three questions that we tend to ask people to get to know them, what do you do is one of them. And we often want to know it back. We want to know what they do. What do you do? Work plays an important role in life. We spend most of our days sweating, pushing, pulling, lifting, creating to-do lists, managing schedules, overseeing projects, managing people, meeting new clients, hiring, firing, and everything else that goes with modern work. Some of us love our jobs, so much so that we have a hard time pulling away from them, while others hate their jobs and have daydreams about a dramatic walkout, telling their boss how they really feel. Spending anywhere between 35 to 45 hours a week, and in some cases, for some of us, up to 60 hours a week, and generally 40 to 45 years in our careers, work takes up most of our conscious life. That said, how does God want us to do this thing called work? How does wisdom transform the way we work? Now, work applies to everyone. Today, we are going to look at what Proverbs has to say about work and laziness, a a topic that applies to everyone, young and old, interns and CEOs, stay-at-home moms and moms that have careers. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody works, and everybody is tempted by laziness or overworking. So it is something that applies to all of us. It could go without saying, God not only wants us to work, Does God want us to work? The clear answer to that is yes, but God not only wants us to work, he wants us to work in a way that honors him and blesses others. I I, I want to tell you clearly today, yes, the command to love God and love others applies even to your nine to five. It's not as if those commands go off the table just because you clocked in. If we are to glorify God with our days, we will glorify him in our work. Simply clocking in and clocking out does not make you a wise worker. You may be someone that works really hard at your job. You may be someone that makes lots of money, has a high position. That does not make you a wise worker. There is a distinction between working and wise working. There's more to it than simply having a job. And as we will see, work without godly wisdom is really spiritual laziness. Work without godly wisdom is spiritual laziness. So here's the question on the table. What is wise work? Not just what is work and how do we do work, but what is wise work? What is work that has been infused, saturated with wisdom? So that's going to be what we're looking at in Proverbs. But before looking at the principles of wise work, I think it might be a good, uh, a good time to just stop and make a case for work itself. Our culture has not necessarily done a good job discipling us in this, has it? On the one hand, we have our culture that sells us the idea that we are what we do, which leads people to inevitably enslave themselves to their jobs. If we are what we do, then we're going to do what we do really well. We're going to get the accolades from others, and 
We're going we're gonna to do it the best that we possibly can, even if it means broken marriages, broken families, spiritual health plummeting, as long as the economy continues to swell. On the other hand, we have a culture that is confused about the value of work. A job is just a job. It's an unfortunate intrusion that keeps us from doing the things that we really want to do. There's something that we have to do if we want to stay out of mom's basement. And yet neither of these understandings, you are what you do, a job is just a job, neither of those fully encapsulate the biblical teaching of work. It's interesting how often I hear people speak as if work itself is one of the byproducts of the fall. Yeah, we have death, we have sickness. Now women, when they have babies, it hurts. Oh, and we have to work. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and read all the way through 3, you might find that work was not the effect, was not the byproduct of sin, of man's fall. It's not as if in Genesis 1 and 2, man had, had endless days to lounge around in the hammock, and it was only after he ate of the stupid fruit that now we have to go to work. That's not the way it was. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God made us to be dominion makers. He tasked us with work to make dominion over the earth. According to Genesis 2, this meant working and keeping the garden. Many scholars understand that working and keeping to be how Adam and Eve worshipped God. How it was that they, that they served the Lord in the garden by working and keeping in the garden. You've, you've watched the Snow White videos where the dwarves whistle while they work, right? Well, in the Garden of Eden, man worshipped while he worked. That was his worship, was working for the Lord, working in the garden, working with the Lord, walking with the Lord. That was, that was the, the blessing of it all, that our work was done with the Lord. So here's the difference between pre-fall work and post-fall work. It's simply this. Before the fall, people lived and worked. After the fall, people worked to live. You see the difference? Before the fall, we lived and worked. Working and living were, went together like lyrics of the same beautiful music. There were lyrics and music put together and just went well together. Just life and work. No bad bosses, no bad co-workers. When you planted a seed, it grew and it bore fruit exactly as you intended it to. It was only after the fall that work became labor. In other, in other words, working to live. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Genesis three nineteen. Now the point in all this is that work is not our problem. If you look at work as if it's this intrusive, cursed thing, you are not reading about work appropriately according to Scripture. Work is not the curse. Sin has brought the curse to work. From the beginning, work was meant to be the means by which we honor and serve the Lord. And even now, we should see our work as an opportunity to give God the worship he deserves, which is why the Apostle Paul tells believers, whatever you do, work heartily. Literally, work with your soul as for the Lord, not for men. 
That's the epitome of Edenic work. Whatever vocation a person might had, have, whatever, regardless of whether it is uh, being an accountant, an engineer, a janitor, a CEO, a park ranger, a pastor, or a mere intern, whatever we do as Christians, we do it knowing that we are ultimately serving the Lord Christ. We are accountants who work for the king. We're janitors who take out trash for the king. There is no such thing as just a job. We work because we believe he deserves worship. True worship. And this is the point I think that you should walk out of here with. True worship cannot be contained on Sunday. True worship of Jesus, when you see him for the worth that he is, it breaks into your office on Monday. It saturates the conference room on Tuesday. For you stay-at-home moms, it's in the living room as you're teaching and discipling your kids on Thursday. That dad's worship breaks in on the Friday night movie nights. It cannot be contained to Sundays. It goes to your nine-to-fives. It's meant to be that way. It's always been meant to be that way. This understanding of God's intention for work as worship is foundational to anything else you might say about work. So before we go to Proverbs and we ask Proverbs, okay, Proverbs, teach us how to work wisely. Unless you first understand that your work is worship, regardless of whether you hate it or love it. You may think that what you do is not significant. It is insignificant as long as you do it for other reasons and for other people. But it's not insignificant when you do it for the Lord. Work is worship. Do you see your work as that way? Now, I know I'm talking to a lot of retired men too. Do you see your lawn care as an opportunity to worship? Most of us say no. My friends, whatever you do, whatever, whatever is a very broad term, isn't it? Whatever you do, serving in the nursery would certainly apply to whatever, right? Doing the dishes for your family would certainly apply to whatever, wouldn't it? Working for a bad boss would certainly be whatever. Whatever you do, serve the Lord. Now, we've established our foundation. Now we're ready to build the house of work. Work is worship. So now let's look at what is wise work worship. There's probably many, many more principles than this, but I think that Proverbs gives us no less than four principles that characterizes what wise work is. The first principle is found, that is found in Proverbs is that wise work pursues the right goals. Wise work pursues the right goals. We must not think that just because we do something, that just because we work hard, just because we have a job, that we are being wise. Wise work means working for the right things. Proverbs 12, 11 says, Whoever works, his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Following is doing something. Pursuing is doing something. But whoever's pursuing empty things lacks sense, literally lacks heart. The word for worthless in this passage can also be translated to mean empty. Whoever chases after empty things lacks sense. 
Can I tell you a little secret? Everyone works hard at something. Everyone works hard at something. Even the lazy man works hard to not work. You know how hard it is to be a lazy guy? I've tried it. It is hard work. Everybody works hard at something, but it's not the fact that they're working hard at something that makes it work. Wise work is working hard at the right things to pursue the right goals. The lazy man never engages in wise work because he's always chasing empty things. The CEO of a big, massive business may be one of the biggest fools on earth because he's chasing empty things. It's not about the fact that you are working. It's the question, what are you working for? That makes wise work. One of the things I noticed about the other preachers is they had a more reasonable volume. So for some of you, you may have to adjust just after five weeks of not having this level of volume. Just can't help it. I've been by myself in altitude, so I still got ear blockage, so I can't hear myself. So here's the question, though. What are empty pursuits? What would be an empty pursuit? I don't think any of us would look at the things that we're living for and, and, and working for and honestly, willingly say, oh, those are empty. I think all of us would somehow try to justify the things that we're chasing after as being substantial, meaningful, right? We all want to do meaningful things and to have meaningful things and to accomplish meaningful things. But I think if, if we're going to be honest, we're going to lay our life bare before the Lord. We're going to ask him, Lord, what in life, in our lives right now is empty? Isaiah 55 verse 2 speaks of the foolishness of laboring for things that cannot satisfy. 1 Samuel 12, 22 warns against chasing after void things, referring to idols that do not profit or save. In both cases, chasing empty things include anything that is void of the spiritual good that God intends for our lives. That's an empty thing. Is it going to somehow bring about what God wants for your life? If not, then it is an empty thing. Sometimes the difference between something that's spiritually substantial and spiritually good for us and something that is empty is a matter of internal motivations. Take a person's desire to make money, for example. Chasing money in order to get rich and live comfortably is an empty pursuit. Ecclesiastes says clearly that that's futility. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Remember what empty things is according to Isaiah 55? Why do you work for things that cannot satisfy? Well, Ecclesiastes says that money is one of those things. And he who loves wealth with his income, again, an empty thing. I think this point is proven true in a legend about John Rockefeller. Um, Some say that when a reporter asked Rockefeller how much money is enough, John answered just a little bit more. Now, I don't know if that actually happened or not. Some say that that conversation never took place. Even if it didn't, I really hope it did because it illustrates well that point that chasing after money is futile. Even the man that had it all didn't have enough, was never satisfied. To make money, if you are working to make money, you will find quickly just how empty, how broken, how void that actually is because it will never, ever, ever, ever be enough. Never be satisfied. 
Now let's flip it on its head. Let's just say somebody happens to be making money, right? And they see money as an opportunity to honor God. This is a way that we can advance the kingdom. This is a way that I can stay out of slavery to debtors. This is a way that I can have no master but the Lord. This is a way that I can own my home and use it for hospitality. A foreclosed home is a terrible place to have dinner, na- dinner with the neighbors in. So we own our home so that we can show hospitality to our neighborhood. Well, if you see money that way, well, that's not empty. But money's not the ends at that point, is it? The, mo- the money is a means to an even better end, something that's not empty. Another example would be the ceaseless American pursuit of promotion. Who's, who, who in their working career was just satisfied with the level? Everybody seems to, in these day and age, they want to level up, right? We want to level up like we're in a video game. We want, we want the next title. We want the next accolade, the next accomplishment. Many a men and women have ascended the corporate ladder one day, only to find themselves the unfortunate casualties of downsizing and forced retirement the next. We may work hard for promotions, but friends, someday someone's going to get promoted to your spot. Everyone gets demoted eventually. Everyone's work gets replaced. Everyone's seat, everyone's cubicle gets redecorated. Redecorated. You might have written the policy manual at your work, and it is the best thing they've seen in a hundred years. It'll be written in a hundred years later. My friends, we work to get on top, and, and yet we see just how empty these things are. There are other things that we might pursue. I think if we're going to talk about pursuing empty things, we have to consider the time wasters in our life. Social media and TV being one of the greatest culprits. A recent statistic, people have often asked, why do I talk about social media and TV so much? Well, here's why. A recent statistic uh, put out by Forbes. So those of you that like to do business at Forbes, that seems like a substantial, reliable uh, source. I don't know. A recent statistic says that that most Americans spent no less, you ready for this? 1,300 hours on social media in a single year. Can you imagine? And and it's interesting. uh, Apple did a a very unhelpful thing, a very convicting thing, that it gives you a screen time report at the end of each week now, telling you how many hours you spent a day on your phone. They found that out of that, just Facebook, an individual, an individual, we're not talking 1,300 hours corporately as Americans, we're talking about Each American spending 1,300 hours on social media in a year. Can Can I just put some perspective into that? That's four or five master's degrees. I mean, those are, if you were to translate that into course credits, I mean, we'd be turning out the smartest, most educated people in the universe. 325 hours a day were spent by individuals just on Facebook. 325 hours a year, not a day. There's not 20. There you go. Wow, that was amazing. Wow. Thank you. I'm not one of those most educated people. So 325 hours in a single year. That's just on Facebook. 
That's not to mention Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, and I'm going to really date myself because I'm not up on all the social media platforms there are, and whatever else there is. And then you add into that that Americans are doing that while they're watching television. We haven't even talked about how many hours is spent just watching television, binge-watching our favorite shows, and not even remember the plot lines. How many times have you gone to bed and gone, what did I just watch for the last three hours? <laughs> My friends, this is not to say that these things have no good in them. It's simply to say that they're clearly not the most effective use of our time, are they? It's not to browbeat you into, like everybody else does, hey, get off Facebook. It's not, it's not to browbeat you. Now, it's simply to show that we are not good users of time. And even if we think we're industrious people, I think our time wasters revealed the truth about each of us, that we each have an element of laziness about us. These things do work some good. Uh, one of the ways that John Piper has noted that social media is good is that, hey, here's what he says, he said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove that on the last day, prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Seems like a benefit, right? That, that now we know how many hours we spend on Facebook a year, and we know how many hours we don't spend in prayer. And we know how many hours we don't spend in Bible reading. We know how many hours we don't spend pursuing spiritual disciplines. Quiet, quiet, productive rest with the Lord. If we think things through things wisely, then even your passive times of sleep, your downtime, can be productive worship. It's our laziness that impacts both our work and our rest. So how do we make sure that uh, we are working for things that are not empty? How do, we, how do we ensure that we don't start chasing these things? Here's a suggestion. Ask how this task or this project or endeavor will help you to love God and love others, beginning with your family, beginning with your wife and kids. How is this task, you're, you're about to, you're, your boss has got a promotion on the table. I don't think faithfulness means saying yes, 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 yes to everything. I think regardless of what it is, whatever task, whatever project, whatever endeavor you're about to start, you need to be able to answer the question, how is this going to help me to love God? How is this going to help me to love others? Beginning first and foremost with the people that are in my house. If what you work for comes with a sacrifice of your growth in Christ, let me tell you the honest truth. It is empty. If you can't work that job, do that task, perform that project, whatever it is, if you can't do that and simultaneously grow in Christ, it's empty. If your work mandates neglecting, neglecting the discipleship of your wife and kids, neglecting spiritual talks with your husband on the front porch, it's empty. If your work is so busy that you have to take a spiritual hiatus in your walk with God from Monday to Friday, so the last you talk with God, the last you, you think about God, the last you open the word of God is on Sunday, and then you have to put a pause on it until Saturday. If that's true, it's empty. It all may sound like an oversimplification, right? You don't, I, I, I don't know how important what you do is. But let me ask you, is it really an oversimplification? 
What work is so important? What job is so valuable? What task is so urgent that we must put our relationship with our Lord, Creator, Savior, and Father on the back burner? What work, what job is so valuable that you have to tell your wife that she is not as valuable as that? What work is so mandating that it could mean telling your kids you don't have time for them? You have 18 years with them in your house, and then they're gone for the most part. What what job, what project, what due date is worth telling your kid I can't read to you tonight. We don't have time for family worship. I've got to answer these emails. Even knowing I'm answering at a place that my boss should never expect me to be. My friends, this is what I cannot stand about American culture. We get contracted. We get signed on for 40 hours a week. And we get mandated to work 60. Do you realize they're stealing your time? And not paying you for it. It's just the reality. They're not paying you for 60 hours. They're paying you full time for 40 hours. And they tend to be very liberal in how they translate full time. Right? Full time means all the time. No, that's not what it meant back then. (laughs) When family means something to us. Full time doesn't mean all the time. Full time means the time I have set aside to work for you. My friends, I think sometimes we just have to be honest with ourselves that we are chasing empty things. Now, here's, here's I, I, don't, I don't want to underestimate just how difficult this is. I know that, that reevaluating what we're pursuing may mean a reevaluation of our work week. It may mean telling the boss no. I'm not going to answer your emails after 9 p.m. Seems fairly reasonable to me. I'm not going to miss my family dinner four nights a week for you. And be in at 6.30 a.m. What if repentance requires you to possibly give up the esteem of your boss? What if Faithfulness requires you to take a cut and pay because the job's just not worth it because you've sacrificed too much for your kids anyway. I've got Jesus's words here, which might be helpful. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? My friends, you give up the boss's esteem. You give up the applause of your coworkers. You give up a swollen paycheck You're not really giving up anything if you're gaining a healthy and flourishing and thriving relationship with the Lord and your family. You only gain by getting rid of all that. This is the way it works. What is a swollen paycheck? A full 401k, early retirement. What is all of that if you do not know God? If you don't know your spouse, 
If you don't know each of your kids and love them on a personal level, it's all empty if you're working for things outside of that. So for this first principle, which is the longest, whether you are a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, be sure that you are chasing the right goals, which is loving God and loving others, primarily your family, with your work. The second principle that makes work wise work is that wise work turns righteous desires into action. Proverbs teaches us that it's possible to want the right things, but unless our wanting turns into doing, then we will never fully accomplish the work that God intends for our labor. Even the sluggard craves things in Proverbs. He wants things. He's hungry for things. Maybe even the right things. What person, fool or wise, does not wish to be out of debt? What person does not wish to own their own home or have money set aside for retirement? What person does not want clothes and food and the basic needs of life met? What person does not want well-disciplined and educated kids who love them? What person does not want, uh, what person would say that they want a bad and lifeless marriage? No one would say that. We all say we want the right things. Lazy and industrious people like all want these things. And yet simply wanting good and right things does not mean getting them. In Proverbs, the difference between a sluggard and a wise worker is that the wise worker turns his or her desires into an action. When the sluggard, while the sluggard craves but gets nothing, Proverbs 13.4. For the sluggard, there's always a reason for why he or she does not get going on the work. Proverbs 15, 19 says, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. The hedge of thorns in this passage implies some sort of obstacle or difficulty. It's some kind of discomfort, maybe. Like a thorn bush isn't comfortable, right? It's, it's one of the reasons why I haven't attended to my flower bed is because it's uncomfortable. It's not going to feel good pulling that thing up. So it sits there for a little while longer. Whatever it is, this thorn bush is enough to cause the sluggard to turn around and go back inside. Ecclesiastes 11.4 kind of presents a little different picture that it presents this sluggard, this man, comes out the door, looks at the clouds, evaluates the wind. Ah, it's a little windy today. It's probably going to thunderstorm and goes back inside. Never sows, never reaps. Looking for reasons. Like the sluggard who's turned away by the smallest thorn bush, so also the one who watches the winds and the clouds is frightened away by the slightest possibility of work. Here's the crazy thing. Even without an excuse, you may think, well, some of those things might be valid excuses. Discomfort's a valid excuse. Okay, well, even without an excuse, according to the Proverbs, the sluggard will make up one. Proverbs 22.13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. My friends, I hate to tell you this. There are lions outside. They live in Africa. You're in Texas. You can go outside and probably not get killed by a lion. But the slugger just, he, he, there's a lion outside. And the fact that lions live outside, the fact that people have been eaten by lions in the past, gives him a valid excuse to stay inside. Do you see what he does? He doesn't want to say, he doesn't admit, 
I don't want to go to work today because I'm lazy. Nobody, nobody would say that. He turns the attention away from his laziness to fear. There are bears outside. I might get eaten. Everybody is terrified of being eaten by a bear. They have any kind of common sense. That's a va- that seems like a valid fear. I mean, who wants to be eaten by a bear? Now we're not going to challenge the sluggard on going outside because he has a valid fear of being eaten by lions. He changes the attention. He has convinced himself that he will die if he goes outside. And since, according to Proverbs 26, 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can speak sensibly, no one will ever speak sense to the sluggard. You cannot convince him otherwise. There's a line outside. I'm going to be eaten. I'm wiser than seven men. I'm going back to bed. And no one can tell me elsewise, otherwise. That's kind of the sluggard's mindset. I wish I could say I've never lived this, but I, I, I know exactly what this is like. A few months after my ankle surgery, some of you remember when I was Hopalong Cassidy around here um, in a boot, you know, wheeling around in a, in a little cart. Um, what some of you may not know is that weeks before I actually got started on it, my, doc- my doctor gave me the all clear to go back to the gym. Did I tell anyone that the doctor gave me the all clear to go back to the gym? No, okay? I, I said, and, and, I, and man, if you remember back in those days, you know, the boot was off. I was supposed to be getting back to normal. Um, I wasn't, I, because it was my driving foot, I wasn't supposed to go to the gym at all. So that was, that was valid. That was real. Now, what I didn't tell you was that he had given me the go-ahead weeks <laughs> after that boot came out, off, to, to go out to the gym. But man, it was I the best at finding reasons not to. I mean, three months of sitting on my rear, not being able to drive at the gym, having people bring food, having my kids make drinks for me. I mean, I had a little bell on the table. Three months of that kind of lifestyle did not help me want to go to the gym at 530 in the morning. I remember I would tell, and Rachel can tell you this, the alarm would go off at 530 in the morning she, she was like, you said today was the day. And I did. I would say the night before, tomorrow's the day. I would be resolved. I was told, I'm sick of this. I need to get out of the house. Tomorrow's the day. I'm tired of just sitting around. I'm starting my new workout program tomorrow. I'd have my shoes by the door, my workout clothes by the bed. I'd have my, my, pro, my work program kind of printed off and ready to go on the clipboard. Man, it's ready. 5.30 in the morning, I'd wake up, honey. Are you going to go? There'd be a deep sigh. I'd say, well, let me check the weather. There were days that I loved the threat of flash floods. There might be a flood outside. I'm going to die from hydroplaning. Roll over and go back to sleep. On the days that there was no chances of rain, I'd have to work a little harder. So I'd go to the closet and hope that my gym clothes were still in the wash. Can't work out in jeans. Whoops, time to go back to bed. There were days that I even thought that a flat tire, four flat tires would be worth not going to the gym at 530 in the morning. 
praying that I would walk out there and somehow I'd have flats. There, there, at, that, at that time, there was people that were upset with me, and I was just praying that they would come slice my tires so I didn't have to get up and go to the gym. My friends, aren't we kind of like that? We look for excuses. We look for reasons. We look for ways. It wasn't until my friend Delvon finally was like, I'm calling bluff. We have to have people in our lives. We have to have these times that we objectively call bluff on our own excuses. My friends, we, as humorous as that might be, we do it in many, many other ways. A woman may say that she wants to be more consistent in coming to church, but then when Sunday rolls around, she, echoing the words of the slugger, says, there are hypocrites outside. I'll be judged in the foyer. And then goes back to sleep. The dad may say that he wants to spend more time discipling his kids, and yet when it's time to pack up and go home, yeah, but I might not be able to buy them those new Nikes if I don't get in some overtime. How often have I said to myself, recent days, I want my neighbors to feel the love of Christ. And yet when an opportunity clear as day presents itself to show some form of hospitality, I reason with myself, don't be crazy. We're in the middle of a COVID epidemic. They won't want to come over anyway. My friends, we are kings and queens at making excuses. But good intentions only go so far. Good, faithful disciples are industrious people that don't look for excuses. They look for opportunities to do what the Lord wants them to do. They don't look for lions. They don't look at the thorn bushes. They look for a way to get over them, around them, or through them, whatever, it must, ha- whatever must happen. We are not afraid of discomfort and suffering because Jesus bore the cross and accomplished our salvation. We are not afraid to be crucified. So wise work means not just wanting the things of God. It means being resolved to work for the things of God through action. Principle number three, and this one we'll be quick on. A third attribute of wise work is that it keeps God's creational design of balance or balance of work and rest. Workaholics and sluggards are equally foolish because neither of them does work in the way that God wants them to. They're equally foolish, equally unfaithful. In six days, this may seem like elementary school. In six days, God created the world. And then on the seventh, what did he do? He rested and he blessed it. He made it holy as a day of rest. And if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you find it was completely inappropriate and sinful to work during Sabbath, a time of rest. Well, Proverbs steps in and says, yeah, but it's also foolish to rest during times of work. A foolish workaholic sins by neglecting God's command to rest with him. And the sluggard sins by neglecting God's command to work with him. After describing the wise industry of the ant, the the author of Proverbs asks the slugger, how long will you lie there? O sluggard, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like a man. Now, it's not, it's not just using a lot of little synonyms, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little rat, a little folding of the hands. Now, this is a progression. This is the slugger's day, right? Now, in his mind, his day is going to start. I'm just going to take a little nap. I'm going to catch up on a little sleep. None of us says, hey, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to sleep the day away. We all, we all justify, I, I, I'm taking a, I'm catching up on a little rest. 
We all say that word little right before, right? Well, he catches up on a little sleep, and then he's going to get a little slumber. And then after that, it's time for a little folding of the hands to rest. What a full day. His day is so busy doing all these little resting and naps and sleeping that he never gets around to working. Now, in his mind, it'll always be just a little. But a lot of these little variants from what God wants in his work means that he never actually does what God wants him to do. He never gets to work. Here's the reality of what the sluggard is. He has an imbalanced love for rest. He loves rest, but he neglects the work and rest that God has given. Sleeping in can be a time of worship. It absolutely can be. Laying in the hammock in a backyard can be a time of worship. And there's some of you that need to apply this by reorienting that balance. Maybe you work so much you neglect rest. I would tell you for the sake of your own soul and for your health with God, go lay on the couch this afternoon and pray that the Lord teaches you something while you rest. But there's also the other balance, the imbalance, where we love our rest but hate our work. Never get around to it. The sluggard is described as a door that turns on its hinges. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. A door does one thing. It opens and it closes. But it doesn't go anywhere. The sluggard tosses. He turns. He moves. He, he is all over the bed. But nothing comes of it. All because of a little sleep, a little slumber. And what he doesn't realize is eventually... That little sleep, that little slumber, that little folding of the hands done in a pattern reveals a life of lazy leisure and will eventually have a destructive effect in his life. In Proverbs 24, 30, uh, verses 30 and 31, the, the author of Proverbs says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. And the stone wall was broken down. Now, this doesn't give you permission to drive by your fellow church members' lawns to see how well they're taking care of them, okay? But what he is doing is he's showing that this lazy man's inside, but you can see the effects of his laziness on the outside. The wall's broken down. The thorns are grown up. In other passages of Scripture, Genesis 3, Isaiah 5, 7, Isaiah 34, Hosea chapter 9, thorns and nettles are a sign of a curse. Have you ever thought that laziness in life is a visible reminder that we are in a fallen world? That's what the author of Proverbs is getting at. The lazy man's house is a reminder that we, lived in a, we live in a cursed, fallen world. So whoever you are, workaholics never find blessed rest, and sluggers never get around to engage in blessed work. And it's in this exasperated state of things that we beg wisdom to teach us a better way. Now we come to the final principle. Wise work diligently plans, prepares, and harvests. Proverbs loves the ant. If ant farms would have been built that day, the author of Proverbs would have had them all around. He loves them. He tells the sluggard that they are exceedingly wise in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 through 25, because they prepared their food in the summer. You see, the ant has insight that not many people have. Here it is. Winter is coming. 
You would think that's a commonsensical thing, that summer's just a season. The ant understands that it's not always going to be times of abundance. It's not always going to be good golden times. There's winter coming. A time when the ability to prepare for the snow is going to be long past. And so the author of Proverbs tells the sluggard, consider the ant. Look at how she has no boss, no chieftain, no ruler, no one to micromanage her in her work. And yet she still prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food at the proper time. The sluggard makes no such preparations. My friends, lazy people tend to live as if it will always be summer and never winter. Always abundance and never drought. Always boom and never depression. Such thinking ultimately proves to be foolish and reveals a terrible mistake. And according to Proverbs, such thinking will lead to death. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. If we live as if it's always going to be summer, my friends, we live in a dangerous world. We as Americans have never been more comfortable. We have never been more rich. We've never been more healthy, never been more abundant. Life expectancy until COVID had never been higher. And even with COVID, it only dropped a little. We live longer, live better, live better in every way, have more degrees. And we act as if it's always going to be this way. And then we're shell-shocked when the economy tanks, when our boss announces cutbacks, when the check engine light comes on, because we didn't prepare. The wise worker, on the other hand, understands that summer is just a season and winter comes quickly. Therefore, we work even in the good times. We labor. Wise work does not mean just drawing a paycheck to pay the bills. It means living a life in preparation. So that when wintertime famine comes, you will still honor the Lord. Now, all that's great and good, but we still have to face the harsh reality of the fall. If, if I stopped there and that was the end of the sermon, all I've given you is four principles of wise work, and it's a how-to sermon. But I have to tell you that your work is still fallen, even in light of these four principles. What was once beautiful, noble, worshipful has been twisted out of shape and it is helplessly out of shape. No matter how much planning and prepping you do, no matter how much you don't be the sluggard, no matter how much you try to apply these four principles, there's still one more truth that you have to understand about wise work. Wise work only becomes wise work when it has been redeemed by Christ and transformed to become Christ-oriented. No matter what you do, no matter what to-do list you make, no matter how much you try to be industrious, unless you realize that Jesus died even to purchase that time, that to-do list, your work will never be wise. He died to restore even our work. Yes, to forgive us from our sins. Yes, to restore a relationship with God, but also so that we could work to the Lord. His resurrection brought a resurrection of our Edenic purpose to serve the Lord and bless others. Now, to be sure, Jesus died. He rose again. He restored the ability to work to and for God. But that doesn't mean that we have received the full fruits of redemption yet. We still have 
bad bosses, pointless tasks, unenjoyable coworkers, never ending to-do list. Bosses that just make you want to pull your hair out. You can ask Moy and Brandon if you want to know more about that. We still have that because we still live in a fallen world full of thorns and thistles. Everywhere you go, you hate your job, get a new one. Six months later, you will hate that one. There's, it's just the reality of our work. Our work is cursed. But Jesus has worked so that we can endure the thorns and thistles. He has worked so even on we still get pricked and prodded. Even though we still sweat, we now sweat knowing that it's all for God, our true Lord and master. You realize it's because of Jesus's redemptive work that Paul tells believers, do not be slothful in zeal. If anyone can apply not being a sluggard, it's believers because we can be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. So in this now and not yet reality of redemption, Our work has been restored and reoriented toward Christ. He is the name above every name. And now all things are to him and for him, even your job. Maybe your job is to take out the trash. That's to him and for him. You want to know why? Because he's the king of everything. He's the king of the office building that the trash time sits in, the trash bin sits in. Your job may be to deal with other people's messes. You do that to him and for him because he is the king of those people. So whatever you do, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you're accountants, janitors, whether you get the promotion or not, glorify the Lord. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, according to Colossians 3.17, and to his service as king. Wise work means knowing that there is no mundane work. The fields, the offices, the conference room, the Zoom meetings, the weekly schedule has been handed over to his authoritative hand. And now we do it to him who doesn't overlook even the smallest thing done for him and to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of work. We do pray, Father, that you will help us to be redeemed as we work, to to not work for our redemption, but to work in the redemption that your son has purchased. God, we thank you that we have the ability to redeem the time. And we ask, Father, that we will be faithful, not to be sluggards, but to be wise workers for the glory of Christ. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.